This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise. I'm Lois Griffiths. Today's program is a timely one. It's about the ruthless and greed of the powerful international oil corporation Chevron, whose actions destroyed the habitat of indigenous people of Ecuador. It's about the courage of an American lawyer, Stephen Donsiger, who challenged Chevron in court. It's about the political power of giant corporations, in this case, Chevron. And to discuss this story of Stephen Donsiger versus Chevron, we're about to interview by telephone Matthew Burton in Boston, Massachusetts. Matthew is a graduate of Boston College Law School. In his words, a freshly minted lawyer working with Stephen Donziger. Welcome to Earthwise, Matt Burton. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Matt, what motivated you to take an active interest in the case of Stephen Donziger? You could have just looked the other way. Yeah, well, so, and to explain the the freshly minted as well. So, you know, I began uh, working with Stephen when I was a law student. Uh, in, the, in the third year of law school, ah. and which is the final year of law school in the United States. And I had heard about his case, and particularly what the U.S. judicial system was doing and what Judge Kaplan was doing through the U.S. judicial system to this guy. And I found it really, really terrifying, um, and, and, and particularly terrifying for someone who was about to enter the profession, um, and, and as somebody who wanted to do the kind of work Stephen was doing. Um, so I was writing a paper about it, and on a whim, I emailed him, not expecting to hear back, uh, of course. Uh, but he actually replied the next day, um, and we got on the phone, and we talked for about an hour. And at the end of that hour, we were working together. And he let me work with him as a law student, and he's letting me work with him now, uh, as a lawyer, to which I'm very grateful. Now that's, of course, he's quite an um, ex- experienced lawyer himself. And, um, he, yeah. Uh, well, it speaks to his character in a serious way, the way he mentors other young lawyers. It's just something that I, I think is really remarkable. And that's important, too, isn't it? We like to hope that uh, you know, things can be better. So I, I think we need yeah. to spell it out, though. How has the actions of Chevron affected the lives of indigenous people in Ecuador. Chevron has been allowed to get away with apocalyptic levels of pollution in Ecuador and have manipulated judicial systems to make sure that this is the case. Um, The people down there, I've never visited the affected area myself, so, so a lot of this is secondhand. But, I mean, these are, are people who were able to live their lives off the land and were very rich in their ability to do so. I mean, very much wealthier than those of us who may, might work wage jobs, you know. I mean, Chevron, through its predecessor, Texaco, came in and uprooted all of that and has caused tremendous health problems to the area 
and the affected communities haven't seen a dime paid to them because Chevron manipulated the judicial systems in reality of Ecuador and the United States in order to avoid paying this judgment. I've read, uh, I've, I've seen some photographs from that part of Ecuador of, uh, of the river with them black. Somebody putting his hand in yeah. and coming up black. So, and I've also heard read stories about people with cancer and birth defects. It's, it's quite horrific, isn't it? It is. And it, it, those are the kind of images. And when I first got involved, those were the images I had seen as well. And it's very hard, I think, once you see those images to turn away from this case. But, but those images are so important because they show you the reality of what happened down there. You know, this is not about Stephen Donziger. And Chevron wants to make it about Stephen Donziger so that we're not talking about what Chevron did to the rivers and to the people and to that way of life. It's very much a case of the the picture worth a thousand wo um, words, isn't it? The, these images, I've seen them on the computer myself, and they are horrific, aren't they? Yeah, and, it, and images are so important. They're just so important to tell this story. And they're images that Chevron would like to not exist, because it's much easier for them to sell their narrative about Stephen when you don't when you can't actually see the pollution that occurred. I mean, the pollution is uncontested. You can't because you can see these photos. Yes, I've also seen a report by um, one of the founders of Greenpeace International who went to Ecuador himself. He met Stephen there, and he reported what he saw. The, this, but this went on for a long time, didn't it? Yeah, the entire lawsuit has, has sort of— no, I mean, sorry, the, the, the pollution itself— yeah, my understanding is that Texaco um, was operating since the early 60s in Chevron, uh, in Ecuador. I apologize. Um, and uh, it caused sort of unspeakable pollution for quite a long period of time, as you said, without any cleanup, without any uh, remediation for the people. Yes, that's what I read from 64 to 92 in this uh, ancestral yes. home of 30,000 people. It's a little, it's an area called Lago Agrio, isn't it? Sort of near the Correct. Colombian border. And it, from what I've read, Chevron drained its toxic waste into rivers and streams and knew exactly what it was doing. Right, and actually made a calculation. I mean, Chevron at one point... Um, and according to, to leaked memos, made a calculation that they would save money by using these unlined pits in the jungle. Huh? Uh, I, I forget the exact total off the top of my head. It was something like $20 million they figured out they would save um, and chose to do it. I mean, this was a choice. It, this is a deliberate poisoning in the Amazon. This, uh, and I've read that um, some of the local people called the Amazon Chernobyl but I'm aware of the phrase. I don't know if it has any legal any legal position. I don't know anything about the legal issues. But I know that sometimes environmentalists want to use the word ecocide. Have you heard yeah. that word used? I have, and it's gaining a lot of steam internationally to describe um, the kinds of things Chevron did in Ecuador. And, and it may well ultimately be useful as a term. I, I mean, I think 
I think it would help the public to have a term that they could understand and, and rally around to, to, to really signify what these corporations are doing internationally. It just sounds so criminal. Is, is this case getting much publicity in the United States? It's starting to. I mean, and, and so for a very long time, it hasn't. Um, just recently, after Stephen went to prison, I mean, we began to see CNN and MSNBC do short segments on the case. New York Times has begun to to, to cover the case a little. Um, independent journalists have been talking about this case for quite a long time. Um, and independent journalists have really been the backbone to bringing attention to what happened in Ecuador. So uh, I would say it's been a mixed bag, but it's growing. I mean, I mean, the whole case and the movement around this case is growing at, at this point really, really fast. So does, does this include all the images that we've been seeing here on the computer? In, in terms of what? In terms of publicity, when I say publicity by the media, do, do the public see these images that we've seen? Yeah, so, so some of those images have gone up. I, I Vice sometime last year did a really great uh, video that sort of, I, I, I think, started getting the ball rolling on the coverage of this case. That, that included a lot of those images that you would have seen. Um, but, but I don't think that, that... Sorry, go ahead. I think we need to step back a bit. Um, Stephen Donziger went to Ecuador. He took up this issue for maybe two decades. Is that right? He wanted to expose yeah. what Chevron was doing, and he wanted to take it to court. And eventually yes. it went to a court in Ecuador. Yeah. And how did they rule? Yeah, so originally um, the suit was filed, uh, to back up even further, um, originally the suit was filed in New York. And, and Chevron were actually the ones who said, no, actually this case should be in Ecuador. So their idea. At the time, right, and, and Chevron wanted this case in Ecuador for various reasons, um, presumably because they thought they could manipulate that court system to produce a favorable result. Um, but when the case actually went down to Ecuador, the evidence was so overwhelming that the Ecuador, the Ecuadorian court and the Ecuadorian Supreme Court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, the Lago Agrio plaintiffs. And this was 20 years ago? It was, it was in long ago as 2011? Yeah, the judgment finally came down in 2011. And the judgment was... A huge fine, wasn't it? The judgment was for $9.5 billion to clean up the Amazon, to give health care for those affected. Um, it was a substantial judgment. And they haven't paid any of it, have they? They haven't paid a dime to the Ecuadorians, mm. but they've spent, they've spent probably nearly a billion dollars to attack Stephen. <sighs> So they've made a judgment call. They've said, in, because they don't want to set the precedent, they don't want to set a precedent that, um, you know, indigenous plaintiffs can win cases against major corporations around the world. That's a bad precedent for oil companies because they take advantage of these communities all the time. 
So they decided that rather than pay the $9.5 billion judgment, they would institute a strategy that they described as, as, quote, demonizing Donziger, unquote. Mm. And that campaign has gone on um, for years now, and they've spent hundreds of millions, probably close to a billion dollars to do it. So if you don't like the message, get the messenger. And this phrase, slap, S-L-A-P-P, this would be an example of a slap, wouldn't it, would you say? It would. I mean, I mean, what's happening to Stephen is designed to is designed precisely to chill participation for people who would get involved in cases like this. And as I spoke about as a law student, you know, it was almost effective against me. What's happening to Stephen is terrifying, um, and it's terrifying for young lawyers, and should be terrifying for young activists who would want to do this kind of work and see this work through. It's designed to to, you know, to scare people. Has it scared you off it? Uh, clearly, it, you know, it clearly hasn't. Um, but that's just because of the, you know, sometimes it can be scary, but the immediacy of the work is so important that I, I'm able to This reminds me a bit about, past that. A bit about the, the news we've just had about Julian Assange. They went to a yeah. frightened off journalists. And in this case, they want to frighten off um, whistleblowers for what corporations are doing. It, slap, uh, that's a strategy, isn't it, to, to a, attack the person who's doing the whistleblowing? And to talk a little bit about Julian Assange, I mean, I mean the, the most obvious comparison, I, I think, between Stephen and Julian Assange is that what we're seeing is the abuse of a judicial system to sort of hold someone in place or to negate them from doing their advocacy. So um, with Stephen, it was two years of house arrest on a misdemeanor. He spent two years locked in his house on a misdemeanor with an ankle bracelet um, and then went to prison and is now back on house arrest. Um, And the stress of that kind of situation is designed to get at you. I mean, Stephen happens to be remarkably resilient um, and remains resilient and remains in high spirit. But when you look at what's happening to Julian Assange, who's been um, locked up for some time now. His life could be And previously was holed up in an embassy. I mean, it's having a real effect on his mental and physical health. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, I'm shocked. We've met, we've been at a talk given by his father in Melbourne, so we feel quite emotionally yeah. involved with that story. But I feel emotionally involved with the stories, too. I've been involved with Greenpeace, and, and um, this time we were talking about COP26, was it called? About um, the pollution from yeah. fossil fuels. So there's an environmental story there, but there's a human rights story there. An indigenous people story, but also the legal systems, the scariest part, the power of Chevron to take him to court. And something's wrong with the. Could you give the details of how that was done? Who was, who was the judge? Uh, yeah, so there was, I mean, I mean, to back up, Chevron filed a RICO suit in the United States against Stephen. RICO suit, RICO statute was designed uh, by 
was originally designed to target like the mob, to target mob bosses specifically, because it was very <laughs> difficult to actually prosecute a mob boss because the crimes were so far beneath them, kind of a thing. Um, effectively, it was a way to get around the the normal criminal justice and to target mobsters. Um, this is a civil RICO suit. So Chevron sued Stephen in the United States for $60 billion, <laughs> alleging bribery and fraud and all these kinds of things. But um, shortly before the trial, uh, Chevron dropped their monetary damages. So they said, actually, we don't want $60 billion. And as a result, um, Judge Kaplan, who is the judge who ruled over the civil proceeding, was able to deny Stephen a jury, which meant that in this monumental trial that would decide the fate of this Ecuadorian judgment, there was no jury. It was just one judge who was up there and able to decide whatever he wanted about the facts. What was the background and of this judge? I mean... Yeah, well, so See, the background of this judge or... is that so judges in the United States are appointed by the president. Um, he was appointed by Bill Clinton in the 90s, but in his prior life, he was a tobacco lawyer. <laughs> so he was defending big tobacco from lawsuits all over the country. Not all that different from defending oil companies. Uh, in fact, there's a really significant overlap in that kind of work. Um, so he was a very corporate-friendly judge who had been a corporate lawyer his entire career representing tobacco companies. Oh, it's scary, isn't it? It's a, we're a bit confused with and, the timeline. The, 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 the original statement from the Ecuadorian court was in 2011, and then yeah. Chevron immediately challenged challenged Dunsinger, and there was this nut judgment you're talking about. And then there's been something else just this year, wasn't there, involving a woman yeah. judge? Yeah, and and what happened this what happened what happened this year stemmed from this RICO suit I just described that this one judge was able to do. Um, and, and by the way, this one judge found Stephen guilty based on the testimony of one witness named Alberto Guerra, who later recanted all his testimony before an international tribunal and admitted that he lied to Judge Kaplan. So uh, he based his entire finding on the testimony of uh, a witness who admitted to lying. But um, as a result of that lawsuit, he awarded Chevron some millions of dollars in legal fees and said that Stephen had to pay it. What comes out of that is a money order for a judgment. And so Judge Kaplan said, Stephen, turn over your computer and your cell phone to Chevron so they can look and see where, where money might be. But the reality is, is that Stephen turning over his computer would mean Stephen would have to turn over and violate, uh, would have to turn over his entire case file to Chevron, and as a result, uh, violate attorney-client privilege, which he cannot do, which is illegal. So they put him in this position 
of, of two of these two acts. Judge Kaplan then charged Stephen criminally um, for not turning over his computer, which Stephen was in the legal right to do. Um, Stephen said, I want to appeal your order that I turn over my computer. He announced his intention to do so, and then, which is a legal avenue, and then Judge Kaplan charged him criminally. And he went to the U.S. Attorney's Office to prosecute the case. And the U.S. Attorney's Office said no. They said, we're not interested in prosecuting this case. Uh, this case is not worth our time. Um, as a result, Judge Kaplan invoked this particularly archaic section of the criminal contempt statute that allowed him to appoint a private prosecutor, um, which is this whole concept of a private prosecutor is currently being challenged in the Second I Circuit. So. We're very optimistic that we'll win this issue. But Judge Kaplan appointed a private prosecutor, and he appointed a corporate lawyer from a law firm that had significant ties to the oil and gas industry and a corporate law firm that had previously represented Chevron. And so this corporate prosecutor came in, um, requested that Stephen be placed on house arrest. Stephen was then placed on house arrest by a judge that Judge Kaplan handpicked to, um, to, to rule on the proceedings. Her name was Judge Preska. She's a member of the Federalist Society in the United States, which is a pro-corporate, um, highly conservative group. Um, and, and from there, Stephen faced multiple years of house arrest and was eventually convicted, again, entirely without a jury. So, Chris, I find this story disturbing. I'm sure you do, too. It has attracted some public attention, though, hasn't it? Because I heard there's some politicians who've spoke out. Yeah, nine, just very recently, uh, nine congresspersons, including AOC, um, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar, and others, uh, signed a letter demanding that the DOJ, the Department of Justice of the United States, act immediately to release Stephen Donziger. Uh, the UN Working Group on mm. Arbitrary Detention also released a statement saying that his entire detention was arbitrary and that he needs to be released immediately and compensated. Um, it's incredibly rare that they issue a decision like this targeted at the United States. So and perhaps the one, unprecedented. the one that's unprecedented, that's good news. Also, what's impressed me is that lawyers and law students, not just you, have been speaking out, haven't they? There's been several law student boycotts of the law firms that Chevron uses, of the law firm that was prosecuting Stephen. Um, lawyers uh, around the world, actually, and legal groups around the world have signed um, petitions in support of Stephen. There's a tremendous amount of support for Stephen and the work he's doing, and it, and it seems to be growing every day, and it gives me some hope that at the end of this dark road, um, there will be a very serious, serious kind of light, and there will be justice for those, those who, were, who were poisoned by Chevron which includes the United States justice system, has also mm, been poisoned mm, by mm, Chevron. Mm. 
Just yeah. like the British justice system is under question. Yeah, we wish you good luck yeah, in all right. your, your yeah. work there. Just, <laughs> just one more question. How is Stephen Donziger now? How, what's his morale? Has he feel defeated or depressed, or is he still going to speak out? Now, Stephen is, one, is, is probably the most resilient person I've ever met in my life. His hopes are high. Um, obviously, he's been released to house arrest. He's allowed to serve the rest of his sentence on house arrest. So he's, he is now back at home at the very least. Um, you know, all the support the case is, is gaining is motivating him in a very serious way to carry this work forward. So he's doing as well as he can, I would say. Well, I hope he goes down as one of our heroes or one of America's heroes. I should say, and one of Greenpeace heroes, too. It's, it's, um, I suppose I the, hope so, too. I assume Ecuador still badly polluted. It's yeah, yeah. This day and age, we must um, we must all work for a better world. Thank you for yes. talking to us, Matthew. I appreciate um, your time, and I, I admire you for what you're doing. And um, it's well. It's thank a, you for covering this case, which which is probably I think is one of the most important cases, if not the most important case. I think it's extremely um, important. It's not been in our media. I came across it by accident. I was reading some articles by Marjorie Cohn. Yeah. And a wonderful woman. We've interviewed her twice. I thought I'd better find somebody else to get a chance yeah. as well. But she's fantastic, too. So she's spoken out. Yeah. Thanks for the part you're playing in it, too. And uh, so congratulations for what you're doing. And Thank you. Let's keep our spirits up, all of us. And hope for a Thanks. better world. We have to keep hoping. We have to keep trying. I... I wanted to say something about Julian Assange, actually, he, um, which, like we said, ties in. I have a quote from John Pilcher, who was at the, the, the trial. He said, this is talking okay. about Stella Morris, the wife. This is one brave woman, as indeed her man is an, exam as her man is an exemplar of courage. And Stella Morris spoke publicly that what has not been discussed today is why I feared for my safety and the safety of our children and for Julian's life. The constant threats and intimidation we endured for years, which has been terrorizing us and has been terrorizing Julian for 10 years. We have a right to live. We have a right to exist. We have a right for this nightmare to come to an end once and for all. So let's hope for a happy ending there. And bless Julian Sage and bless Stephen Donziger. These people Absolutely. making a stand. Yes. Thanks so much. And to all our listeners, have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We'll see you next year. Goodbye. Goodbye.